A toast, a toast, my friends, to our health and cheer and happiness. Otto, let the ritual begin. Hello and welcome to the Cult Film Companion Podcast, the home of movies that are off, under, and ahead of the cinematic radar. My name is Chris, I am your host, and this week I have a very special guest joining me for a very notorious film, so this episode's going to be a lot of fun, and we generally like to keep things kind of a PG, PG-13 level, although this episode in particular, just due to some of the content of the movie, is going to be a little bit more um, adult, I'll say. It's going to be a little bit more adult. <laughs> So I just want to mention that the Cult Film Companion Podcast is a proud member of the Blind Knowledge Collective, www.blindknowledge.com. The site is not operational as of this recording due to some technical issues, but it should be up and running hopefully by the time that you actually listen to this episode. So please go to blindknowledge.com, check out all the fascinating and um, entertaining podcast video casts that are going on over there. It's a very DIY, creator friendly atmosphere where we all strive to put out entertaining shows for any particular itch that you might want to scratch. The Cult Film Companion podcast is also a featured podcast on Newsly. Newsly is an audio app for iOS and Android. It picks up web articles about the most trending topics on the web at any given moment and reads them to you in a natural human voice. For the first time in the history of the Internet, the entire web becomes listenable. Browse from articles that you choose and start playing. Stop scrolling and start listening. You can follow any topic as specific as you would like, from sports, science, to Bitcoin, to the Kardashians, and I'll find the latest articles and read them to you. Plus, they have podcasts from over 50 different countries. Explore trending podcasts from around the world. Our podcast, The Cult Film Companion, is there, too. Download and use Newsly for free now from www.newsly.me or from the link in the description. And please use the promo code C-U-L-T-F-1-L-M. Drop the I, pop in a one, cult film, and you get a month-free premium subscription. With all that out of the way... I would like to welcome uh, my very special guest, Antonio, from the Cult Worthy Podcast. Good afternoon, sir, or good morning, actually, to you. Yeah, it's still morning over here in Utah. How are okay. you doing? I'm doing great, thanks. And how are you? Fantastic. It's a beautiful Saturday morning. I don't have to work for a few hours, so I get to spend the next hour or so talking about this movie with you. Great. Can you just uh, quickly tell us a little bit about your own podcast and how it might differ from the uh, the Cult Film Companion? Uh, well, I got two podcasts, but they're both kind of under the same banner. So the Cult Worthy Podcast, I consider an exposure show where we highlight obscure cinema and bring attention to films that may have not gotten the cult following they deserved. And at the same time, we do highlight cult cinema as well. But really, it's about digging up those hidden treasures that never really got a chance to build the cult that me and a lot of people online think that they deserved. And then I also have the Cult Worthy Classic, which is a guest show where I bring on a guest to dissect, uh, again, cult-worthy classic films made before 1970. 
because I consider those like the blueprints for films that people would consider either cult films or obscure films of the future, they all have a blueprint, and it kind of goes back to these films that were made in the past. And I don't want to talk about them at the same time as like Friday the 13th or some kind of obscure slasher film. They just need a little bit more you know, dissection, and that's what that film's about. Great. So, yeah, that's um. those are both amazing shows. Please check out the Cultworthy podcast. I'm going to have links for Antonio's uh, Twitter. Uh, you want to just give us a quick shout-out on your, your your Twitter handle so people can follow you. Yeah, so my Twitter, my Twitter handle is just at the Cultworthy, and you can also find me on my website, thecultworthy.com, where I've got all of my reviews written down as well, as well as blogs and uh, updated movie news, Blu-ray releases. It, it's kind of like my little, my little playground where I put all of my film fascination and film finds on. So, yeah, if you visit the Twitter handle, visit the, the website, you will find pretty much everywhere i'm at either on my podcast all the links to that and then links to my friends which again i will put your link on that website as well because now that we're talking and getting into these conversations it's always good to have like that just frame of reference like hey go check this guy out he's doing some good work too awesome i appreciate that and uh yeah we previously had talked this week uh we we were both guests on the cult connection podcast so uh check him uh, check Ian out as well, and a, a great time talking about three just wonderful movies. So another movie that I consider wonderful, although it's more fascinatingly bizarre, is the movie of the week for us, and that is Caligula, which is exactly what you would expect from a movie called Caligula. I remember... Knowing the name Caligula before I knew anything about the actual historical figure or actually seeing the movie, it kind of resonated with me the same way that something like Sodom and Gomorrah resonates with you. I was I was raised Catholic, so I, I heard the stories of Sodom and Gomorrah, and it's kind of like those phrases kind of like get um used in the cultural zeitgeist and they kind of just kind of as used as kind of like the stereotype for debauchery and 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 speaking of debauchery we're we're covering a movie which i mean where do you even begin with a movie like this we're talking about caligula that stars malcolm mcdowell mcdowell excuse me as the titular character, we've got a supporting cast including Helen Mirren, Peter O'Toole, and John Gielgud. But we've got a movie produced by Bob Guccione, the, I believe, founder of Penthouse. And Penthouse Films International produced this movie. So before we kind of dive into the actual film itself. Antonio, what is your kind of like relationship with this movie as far as uh, where did you first come um, aware of it? When did you first see it? All that good stuff. Man, it's kind of complicated. So 
um, I was raised with uh, a house in a household that was just very open to cinema. I'm an only child. I had parents that both worked full time, so I was one of those '80s latchkey kids that was raised by TV, raised by cable, but in a in a sense responsibly, but also with a sense of freedom. Like they didn't want to censor me from the world, but they also knew that there were some things that I shouldn't be seeing at that you know tender young age of let's say seven or eight years old. Sure. I I first heard the name Caligula in a film that my mom showed me from the 50s called The Robe. And it was like the first film that was shot in Cinerama. It was an epic biblical story that was so popular in the 50s. And Caligula was the villain of that film. And um, I just remember hearing that name because he was so bad and he was so evil and, and de not demonic, but like he, he definitely had a sadistic you know, flair to him that was also kind of flamboyant. The character who, the guy who played the character in that film was very flamboyant. And it just kind of stuck with me, that name. Now, they had told me, my parents, I mean, as early as, I want to say, t age 10, they had told me that there was a film called Caligula that was supposed to be, like, really, really bad, like a porno. And I knew what <laughs> porn was. I don't think I'd seen it at that point. Sure. But my mom was like, oh, my God, your father and I tried to see that in the theater. We walked out. They were not prudes by any means. But I think that they went into that film expecting some kind of biblical epic. And it would have been the R-rated version because it was released in the theater. This was been in Reno, Nevada, where I grew up back in like the late 70s so so they didn't see this uncut version i think that you and i are talking about today but it was one of those films that they kind of warned me about like if this ever pops up on hbo you're not allowed to watch it cut to i want to say like three or four years later i'm like 13 or 14 i'm visiting my uncle's house in florida and we all knew my uncle had very flamboyant tastes and i was staying in a guest room and I opened up this top drawer that was underneath the TV, and it was full of video cassettes, and it was all porn. It should be noted, though, that my uncle is a homosexual, so it was all gay porn. And not the kind of pornography that I was interested in, so I had no interest in like looking through that box. However, there was a red video cassette that I recognized, and it said Caligula on it. So, of course, I popped that in and proceeded to watch what was, at that time, I think, the R-rated 90-minute version, which is still pretty graphic. It doesn't have the explicit sex scenes as the uncut version that's like two hours and 40 minutes, which we'll get into that later. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, I, I sat and watched it, and the first thing that I thought was, this isn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> like, I thought this was going to be... I mean, if you watch the R-rated version, you've seen, like... Cinemax softcore films that were more potent than that. So I was like, oh, that's kind of a letdown. Cut to 10 years later, now I'm in my mid-20s and the internet's around, and I see it on, I think, one of just the whatever streaming sites. Oh, like, okay, Caligula, I remember this. And I realized that this one's a lot longer. I watch this one, and I'm like, okay, now I get what my parents are talking about. There is full unsimulated sex in this one. Yes. And, <laughs> and and it's funny to say, because we can get into this a little bit later. I'll just put it out there that, like, with this uncut version, 
I was kind of bored to tears. I actually prefer the storytelling and the pacing of the R-rated 90-minute version. And at this point in time, you know, this is like 15 years ago, I hadn't done my research. I didn't know all of the background drama to this film mm. and all of the all of the tension between the producers and the directors. I didn't know who Tinto Brass was. So now, 15 years later, and I've you know been kind of fascinated about this film and all of the drama behind it, it's really exciting to talk about it with you because no one ever wants to talk about this movie because I think they're either afraid of it or they have like this kind of weird misconstrued representation of what it is or what it tried to be and they just consider it smut so yeah it, it's something that not a lot of people talk about no it's not and i i think yeah i think this movie kind of gets a bad reputation it is one of those movies that people don't i, I for for whatever reason don't want to talk about. Um, I've come across this a couple times with my show. I had a, a hell of a time finding someone that wanted to talk about cruising with me. Um, and, you know, I, I, I get it. It's it, These are not easy movies to watch at times. But, I mean, we could just talk the whole episode about... We, we could have an episode devoted to the background drama. We could have a, an episode talking about the... I don't even... I, I've lost count of how many cuts of this movie have been released over time. And there's still talk about trying to do a, a recut that's closer to uh, Tinto Brass or trying to do a recut closer to Gore Vidal. But in my research for this movie... I came across some very interesting things. So apparently, um, Bob Guccione and Penthouse had helped fund movies in the past. Um, most notably, I came across this. Um, they they helped procure some some money to produce Chinatown of all things. And yeah, China, Chinatown and one of my favorite underrated movies, which I spoke about on my podcast a few weeks ago, Day of the Locust, which is a real dark look at Hollywood of the 1930s. And to, to think that Penthouse had a part in producing that film, it really kind of blew my mind when I learned that. Yeah, it similarly blew my mind um, when I realized that two two of my my favorite directors, um, David Cronenberg and David Lynch, both had movies that were produced by Mel Brooks. Now, you think of Mel Brooks, you think of, of comedy, <laughs> of satire. And he helped produce, under his uh, Brooks film moniker, helped produce The Elephant Man and also helped produce The Fly. So, I mean, it's interesting to just see... You know, but um, completely differently because I, I, I had the feeling that Mel Brooks just kind of saw the talent in these two and kind of just was like, I'm just going to give you money and was kind of a hands-off producer. Uh, Bob Guccione, wow, uh, he's all over this movie. And the, the background is interesting to me. So this movie took approximately four years to finally make it was produced on a budget of, I believe, around $17.5 million. And he wanted to produce an epic 
movie and he wanted to do something I guess artsy because he hired Tinto Brass who at the time was very well known for being kind of an avant-garde director and after rejecting one screenplay he hired Gore Vidal to write a screenplay and Gore Vidal is a well-known uh, well-known novelist and essayist and he is also an open I I believe he was openly bisexual kind of leaning more towards the homosexual but I mean that's his life but it's just interesting to me that I mean Penthouse is kind of is kind of the harder version of Playboy not so hardcore as Hustler so it's kind of like the the uh the middle child of those three adult magazines I I'm not sure exactly what he had in mind when he was hiring um Gore Vidal and Tinto Brass because I mean, what we got here, uh, I mean, I I know that I've seen the 90-minute cut of this movie. I've owned this movie over the course of my life at least three times in various different forms. I, I do remember having a two-disc set at one point that had the 90-minute the cut and then the, um, the unrated cut, which is... Um, Totally uncut and uncensored, and I don't know about what copy you have, but I have all over this uh, DVD release is the phrase, the most controversial film ever made, which, eh, I mean, that's that's subjective. Um, it certainly is controversial, but I mean... Well, I mean, if, if, if you're also looking at timestamps. I mean, if it was considered the most controversial movie ever made at its time, and it's been in print, they can logistically use that phrase in its advertising and and be fine with it. You know, right? I mean, I mean, you could uh, at the time. I remember. Well, I don't remember because I wasn't born. But um, some of the most controversial movies um, ever made, things like. Uh, Midnight Cowboy would come up because it received an X rating. Although I, I have no idea how they justified giving Midnight Cowboy an X rating. Um, and then like something like Last Tango in Paris. Speaking of unsimulated, uh, unstimulated or unsimulated uh, sexual um, activities. But um, any thoughts on you know the hiring of uh, Gore Vidal and Tinto Brass to kind of develop this project? I mean, I've I've read so many conflicting stories about this, and and sometimes it feels like it was kind of like a bait and switch. Like I really think that Guccione needed financing other than his own to raise that much money. Because let's face it, you don't make a seventeen million dollar production with penthouse money. No, I mean there were there were Italian and European investors and stuff like that. So you know, Vidal had already written a story or a novel about Caligula that they kind of did the bait and switch on him in the sense that like, Oh, we've read your work on this. We would like you to adapt your story into a script for this film. And Vidal, as you said earlier, being openly bisexual and homosexual was really known for like his, um, 
interpretations of historical figures really bringing the idea of closeted homosexuality or bisexuality to their inner workings mm. unsubstantiated most of the time but again he wrote it as fiction so he wouldn't be like liable for anything and so he kind of seemed like the right guy because you know at the time we're, we're talking about this Roman emperor who was known for his cruelty and his flamboyant tastes as pretty much all people with power had back in those days. Right. And the main subject of, of Gadal's story was that um, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Yes. That was the whole idea of his premise. So going back to the bait and switch theory you're trying to raise money for this project. You know, in a way, I feel like Guccione is kind of like uh, Jack Horner and Boogie Nights. He wants to make the most memorable, epic, pornographic film of all time, just on a much <laughs> higher level. Right, yeah. And Tinto Brass has always been known for, yeah, like being avant-garde, but for being playfully erotic. Almost all of his films are erotic, but for the most part, kind of harmless. If anything, they're almost comical. Um, there's like a real whimsy to the eroticism of his films. And later on in his career, he did go for a little bit more of the graphic sexual nature, but mostly they were kind of like teasy films. Mm -hmm. So I think that Tinto Brass walked into this production thinking that's what he was making. He wanted to have a lot of opulence on screen where he could show things on film for larger audiences that had been mostly reserved for European audiences or art house theaters or erotic film theaters. And this was his chance to kind of like give himself a bigger name. Right. Yeah. Vidal, Vidal got out of that project early. Once he saw what they were doing to his, his material, you know, there's, there's stories that he was fired. There were stories that he left. I'm sure it's a little bit of both. Yeah. I'm sure they gave him yeah. an ultimatum and he was just like, no, I'm not even playing this. Take my name off of it. But of course, when you do that, your name's just going to live in infamy as once being attached to this project, you know? Right. I mean, it's so, kind of, I, I always say something like um, the Alan Smithy pseudonym. I mean, you could throw Alan Smithy in there. And I'm sure, you know, before the, the dawn of the Internet, you, you know, you could have probably gotten away with hiding your identity for a while. But I mean, now that I mean, everything's just a Google search away. But um, I'm sorry, to interrupt. I just wanted to throw it throw it out there. I mean, yeah, having your name removed from it is almost more notorious than being kind of associated with it. Exactly. And again, bait and switch with the actors as well, like. You know, there's a lot of conflicting stories. Um, I think the person that's been most vocal about it is McDowell because he's been in so many, like, podcasts. He's done so many interviews about it. Like, he knew he was signing up for a very erotically driven film. He didn't think that he was being signed up for a truly pornographic film. I don't think anyone did. But there was something titillating about it. Like he, he was always a daring performer, you know, yes, clockwork yes. orange is daring performance. Um, the funny thing is that right before this film started shooting, he had just made a film called voyage of the damned, which was kind of like a, a high seas on a cruise line kind of war drama with lots of different characters. And it was looked at as like a very, you know, well delivered 
piece that was friendly for families. It was something a lot of people are going to see. He was starting to get more of a name for himself, and then he wants to make this film. So I've always appreciated <laughs> his 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 choices and roles. You know, I have to say, he's one of those actors that even if I don't necessarily like the movie that he's in, he doesn't. I I and I I'm only speaking from the movies that, uh, of his that I have seen, but I've never seen him like sleepwalk through a role like I've seen with other actors do, even if the material is kind of schlocky, and I'm not saying Caligula is, but I'm just thinking sometimes the material, it, it, it he elevates, he can elevate kind of like poor material. He never, he always kind of, he's just like a consummate professional. Like even if the movie turns out to be terrible uh, overall, I, one thing I can never say about McDowell is that, like, he just kind of seems to be phoning it in. And I, maybe you've seen a performance, but I, I'm just talking to me personally. I mean, something... I'm not a fan of the Rob Zombie Halloween remakes, but, I mean, damn, if you're going to hire someone to replace Donald Pleasance, you, you couldn't do better than Malcolm McDowell. And the only reason that I would ever revisit those particular Halloween movies is because of Malcolm McDowell. And again, you mentioned A Clockwork Orange, one of my all-time favorite movies. I mean, just just such an iconic performance. It, but it's also very interesting. Oh, yeah. um, one of the um, interestingly enough, one of the people that defends this movie is is Helen Mirren, which I think is very admirable admirable of her. Um, she it, it's almost it, it almost seems like sacrilegious to kind of associate her with a movie like this. Um, she's such a well-renowned actress and just, just I mean, just an absolutely brilliant performer. Um, but she's defended this movie and she said it's, a, it's a, I believe it's a mix of art and genitals, which is uh, pretty much sums up this movie. It is very, I mean, uh, that's why I kind of love this movie because... There are parts of it that are so, I don't know, maybe highbrow is a bit strong, but I mean the costumes and the production and the sets that were created are just, they're magnificent to watch. I mean, it's just like, it's its a beautiful art house movie. It just also happens to be, at times, a hardcore pornographic movie. Uh, and that's... Yeah. And... It's interesting because on my particular, on this particular cut, I mean, the credits are just interesting because it says, it doesn't even have a director. Like, Tinto Brass doesn't even have a directing credit. It just says principal photography. Principal photography. Right. <laughs> and then after it, it says additional scenes directed and photographed by Gene Carl, Louis, and, and Bob Guccione. And... It also fascinating is just the editing is by the production because, geez, I'm I'm sure it pretty much almost everyone had a little bit of hand in editing this. I believe that Brass was fi from what I read, Brass was fired of after editing about an hour of the material. He was fired, and then Guccione kind of went in um, and pretty much filmed pretty explicit sex scenes in this movie and they're they're littered throughout it and again i mean there's 
whatever kind of sexual kink you might have, it, it's it, it's it's in here probably. I mean, this is the uh, second time, so this is going to be episode, I believe, thirty three or thirty four of the Cult Film Companion podcast, and. In our brief infancy, this is the second time that uh, uh, someone being fisted has been featured on this show. So um, <laughs> my, my, my track record, although that scene, I mean, it's not an again, with like the scene in cruising, it's um, you don't actually see all that much. Your mind kind of makes up a lot of it for you. But um, yeah, it's all in the setup. Yeah, but I mean, this that scene also literally has a, a cherry on top, and if you've seen the movie, you know yeah. exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. Uh, there's really, I mean, plot-wise, we kind of have the rise and fall of Caligula, and I remember when I had first obtained that, that first uh, two-disc set, I was taking a history class in college, and we had to... and. Um, for our final project, we had to kind of pick a historical figure, and um, I, I chose Caligula. Uh, and for, I wish I had the paper that I had written about him, because I learned a great deal about the actual <laughs> historical figure. And he was very debaucherous. He had a very quick rise and fall. Um, the sexuality was kind of all over the place. Um, incest bisexuality uh one of the things that i do remember though is that he had constructed this amazingly um ambitious huge boat that he would want to travel all around with but his boat was like it it had like a special section just devoted to his horse on it and um that's, of course, the, the historical Caligula. Um, there's still a lot yeah. of horses in this movie. But, I mean, it, as far as historical accuracy goes, you know, that's that's certainly debatable. I mean, I, I you know, I'd love to talk to a real historian um, to kind of... Uh, <laughs> but I, I'm sure it, this is kind of the movie that people kind of poo-poo um, historical accuracy. Especially... Um, I mean, I love the scene, and I love the set piece, but there is this huge machine where people are buried kind of like in this <laughs> huge... I mean, it's kind of like where they had... like It almost reminds me of a gladiator stadium, but instead of having people fight, um, we've got this huge machine that kind of just... It's almost like a human lawnmower because we got people buried up to their necks. Um, I love that scene, but I mean, historically, come on. I mean, it, that clearly didn't happen. But I think it's very. Well, there's so much more on that machine, too, that, like, I wish they would have gone all out and shown us more. Like, it's got drills and stabbing devices. Right? Put yeah. Through it. <laughs> it's like, you, you're going to build all that and only give us the, the human lawnmower? Come on. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an, like I said, I mean, Say what you will. I mean, this movie is certainly not for everyone, but um, I kind of want to. I kind of want to see what. I kind of want to revisit that ninety-minute cut, um, because I could. Here's the thing: every everyone. Well, 
not everyone, but I'm going to say 99% of the population at, at one point or another has watched pornography. And if you're listening to this, you watch movies. Do I necessarily want pornography mixed in with my movie? No. <laughs> you know, there's kind of, it's kind of no. like, it's like there's a time and a place for it. <laughs> so, um, but I think it's very interesting. You, I, I just want to go back to Gore Vidal for a moment. I, I know that he had, um, he either rewrote or was asked to kind of script Dr. Ben-Hur, and he had um, some of that closeted sexuality that you were talking in something like uh, in like Ben-Hur. So, like, this was not – I mean, this is not a big secret. And I know that when he, his first draft of the screenplay was delivered to Guccione, I, I believe that there was only one heterosexual love scene, and that was between – Caligula and his sister, if I'm not mistaken. Does that sound correct? Yeah, I remember reading that too. And that point too, the sister was actually Maria Schneider from Last Tango in Paris. Oh. And she was so disgusted by the scene and the way that it was directed. And plus, you know, I'm sure she, we've all heard about the terrible experiences that she had on that set. Yes. Um, that she walked off. And was replaced by the person who ended up playing Drizella in in this film, but yeah, that that's what I've heard too. And yeah, the 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 the, 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 Gore, the Gore Vidal stuff. In you now again, I think some of the undertones that he put in his work that um, had those homosexual or bisexual undertones, I think went over the head of many people back then. We're yes. We're, we're in tune enough with the culture now to pick it up immediately. But back then, it really went over people's heads, and that's why it's so studied and talked about now. Again, this would have been a project where he didn't have to have undertones. He could write exactly what he felt and what he wanted. And to think that something was too outlandish for Gore Vidal is just <laughs> something to be talked about. And it's it's interesting to me. One of the things that I think is just kind of just an enigma, maybe. Maybe that's the word I'm looking for. But, I mean, the sexuality in these historical movies, I mean, they didn't really kind of have the hang-ups that some of us have today. Like, I mean, bisexuality back in these historical times was not something that was kind of like frowned upon or like you're you're someone would raise an eyebrow or something like that i mean it was kind of the norm almost i mean so i i, I just think it's 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 interesting that nowadays some people get so hung up on that sort of thing and uh it's almost like we're 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 backwards in our thinking but then again that's also my American point of view and just like the way that, you know, American media depicts sexuality and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I think the Europeans um, generally have a much more open mindedness when it comes to these sorts of thing. Um, but going back to I just wanted to I, I'm just going to mention something that um, you brought up that just a completely unrelated movie, but something about sexuality going over your head 
I remember as a teenager, I was like obsessed with horror movies, uh, in particular Nightmare on Elm Street movies. And a Nightmare on Elm Street two um, oh has God, yeah. has kind of gone on to become the most homoerotic eighties horror movie, and I think it's absolutely brilliant. Um, I I have issues with some of the uh, the lore as far as uh, Freddy Krueger goes. That being put aside, the um, the screenwriter of that particular installment and the lead actor Mark Patton were 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 gay, and um, the the homoerotic undertones or overtones in some scenes um, went completely over my head as a teenager, and then when I rewatched it as an adult, I'm like, oh my god, I I, I totally see it but i mean yeah i think a lot of times you know if the if the writing and you know i'm kind of here i'm comparing a nightmare on elm street 2 to gore vidal but if the writing is so kind of clever and on point and and just creative enough that some of these kinds of things that people potentially would get hung up on it kind of goes over their heads you know and um yeah like you said i I totally get the bait and switch kind of thing going on here. Um, and that's really, I mean, it's not par for the course for every cult movie, but there's, there's lots of stories about people getting told one thing and then, um, another thing happening behind the scenes and, and all that kind of stuff. But, I, I just want to talk about some of the performances in this movie because I think that um, Caligula, which I believe does translate to Little Boots, which is his... Uh, yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, McDowell's like, he's, he's all in on this character. Um, and his performance, I mean... I think part of the reason that I I don't necessarily love this movie is that I think, like you said, some of the gratuitous sex scenes like overshadow what is actually a very interesting story of Caligula and what happens when power corrupts. Um, We get some great scenes of um, Caligula almost being ridiculed by Peter O'Toole's character at the very beginning, and then we get um, his, his rise to power, and then we get scenes of him um, pretending to be a beggar to try to to, to try to get, I guess get in touch with the, the the common man or the the peasants, as it were, at the time. Um, he 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 his performance is great. He like if this was. You kind of take away Bob Guccione and all the like random gratuitous sex scenes. I mean, we we it, it there's a really good movie in here, um, but like some, there's a no. please no 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 I'm sorry go ahead no no there, there is a really good movie in here. Um, the problem is, and and I've heard him talk about this. Um, one of my favorite interviews with him ever is he did a two part. Uh, podcast on the Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast. It was probably one of the funniest, most entertaining podcasts I've ever heard because they just let him go. And 
he said something that kind of confirmed what I thought. When you watch this film, not to say that Tinto Brass is a great director, but he had never directed anything on this largest scale. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to pick apart this movie a little bit because, like I said, there's a good movie in there. We yeah. just didn't get to see it. Sure. The set pieces are so big. Yes. Yet the script is very centralized on characters. So if you notice, when you're watching this film, and it starts off right from the beginning, when we were first introduced to Peter O'Toole's uh, Capri, the big debauchery palace that this guy lives in. Mm-hmm. I mean, these set pieces are so big. You notice that Brass shoots everything in a very large master shot, and then he follows characters on a tripod. He doesn't do an establishing shot. He doesn't do uh, a two-shot or even a one-shot close-up. It goes master shot to tripod following characters. It feels almost like someone is shooting a rock concert. (laughs) You get very little connection with the characters and the performances that they're delivering. Now, one of the things that McDowell said on this podcast is that he actually got very little direction performance-wise from Brass because Brass was so concerned about filling the screen with this massive set that they spent all this money on. So the actors really kind of were left to their own devices on how to fill this screen with their performance. Therefore, McDowell's performance is over the top in a character role that's already over the top. He has to fill the screen with his performance because half of his screen time, he's a dot on the screen (laughs) because everything else is this giant set that they're trying to capture. Same thing with Helen Mirren. She did it the opposite direction. I feel she underplays her character because she can't compete with McDowell's overperformance. Right. So she plays everything undertoned, masterfully done. You know, and that's where, like I'm saying, like you're getting a good movie, you're getting good performances, but none of them sync up with what you're seeing all at the same time because there's not good communication with the actors. There's not good communication with the photographers. There's not good communication with the editors, if any, because like this film was edited by multiple people at the end. Right. So that's why it feels mismatched. I like that 90-minute cut because it gives you less time in between moments where there's less time stretched out. I was talking about this with someone else where, like, I like an 80-minute comedy because when the laughs stop, it gives you time to pick apart the things in the film that either don't work or bad performances or bad writing. That's why I think comedies should be short and small so the laughs are constant. In a weird way, this is kind of a comedy. It should be played as a comedy, you know? It's a, it's a comedy and a tragedy, yet there is all of this epic drama and melodrama filled in between those spaces, and then in between those spaces are unsimulated sex scenes that just drags it out even more. So, again, there's a good movie here. You just have <laughs> to, like, really surgically remove the parts in between to get it. Right. And I mean, speaking of performances, uh, I'm willing to to bet 
vital parts of my anatomy that uh, Peter O'Toole was absolutely plastered throughout this movie. If he wasn't, this man is like the best drunk I've ever seen on screen. I, I Actually, McDowell said that he was smoking two joints at a time through cigarette holders in between takes. So I think he was more stone than he was plastered. Okay. Um, <laughs> close. I was close. <laughs> that, that, really close. <laughs> that is a podcast I'm going to have to, um, to check out uh, because I love Malcolm McDowell and I love Gilbert Gottfried in small doses. Um, that voice, that can get a little grating, but that's completely... Um, irrelevant to our discussion of Caligula, but I mean, yeah. like you were saying, these set pieces, there's there's like this multi... Oh, God. It's like th- two-story tall set piece and um, O'Toole's kind of palace where, I mean, McDowell's just like following him around and he's showing him like his living <laughs> statues and they're torturing one of these guards, and it's just like, I mean, these set pieces are um, absolutely amazing, but like you were saying, um, maybe a more, I don't want to say that Brass isn't, well, he's not the best director I've ever seen, but I mean, like you were saying, he's kind of, he's focused a little, I I think he's kind of focused a little too much on the visual aspects than he is on... um, delivering a, a kind of a coherent narrative with strong character performances. Yeah, like I said, it, it, nothing really matches up, and that's that's the problem with this film. In the shorter version, that's less apparent, but it's still definitely there. And, you know, the other thing, too, about the these, these sets and how they're constructed is that there's an inconsistency in quality. There are some of these set pieces that they really put a lot of time into. You can tell that they are just intricately designed. The marble work is fantastic, but then you'll switch to like another scene and it looks so shoddy. It looks like it was constructed for like a community theater production. <laughs> and you see it in the costumes too. You know, so there is an inconsistency and, and, and not even that. When Guccione went back and reshot a bunch of sex scenes to put in there, they must have used a different film stock because you can see glaring differences in quality of film and color timing between the shots that were inserted. It really just takes you out of the environment that the original film was trying to put you in. It is almost like you are watching two different movies spliced together. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you because I, um like I said, I had this beautiful two-disc set. And this most recent time, I, I ordered Caligula. And again, there's so many different cuts of this movie floating around by seemingly numerous distribution companies. Um... But I wanted to get, I guess for the show, I wanted to get the uncut edition. 
and what I was going through Amazon. So I finally found one, you know, I would have things saying, well, this won't play in your DVD player or we can't, they won't deliver to the United States. I ended up with this bizarre kind of bare bones DVD and I don't even like see the, the, the company that distributed it. But it just so happens when I was doing that, when I was rewatching this movie for the show. So I was looking down and it's a it's an I wonder this might be kind of borderline bootleg what I'm looking at here, because. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. I have that version, too. I had it like I bought it six years ago. It was originally an Australian import. Yes. From a from a Powell uh, recording. So what had happened is it was whatever they did with the the interpositive when they were like taking um, the transfer, they were sending it to PAL. Now PAL plays at 25 frames per second. So it's got a little bit different frame rate than we have here in the States. So then they use that to transfer to the DVD. So what you're looking at on that version is actually 25 frames per second. So it, it seems like a little bit like a progressive scan. It's kind of what TV looks like in the UK. It's a little bit different frame. Yes, rate. yeah. Um, the reason why they had to do that is because there, at the time, wasn't an official, unrated, uncut edition in the States that a company could use. Now, a new one just came out, I think, from Severin, which is supposedly the, the first time we're getting this true transfer from the original negative which is really expensive right now but um yeah that's one that's been kind of available now back when i was a kid you could get the uncut on vhs and i think it was two discs and then or two uh cassettes right and then the 90 minute cut on one cassette the 90 minute cut was on a red cover and that's the one that i saw as a teenager and then the uncut two vhs set had a blue cover, and that's how you were able to tell the difference between the two. And here in Utah, we are not allowed to have uh, adult films in our video stores back in the day. It's like when I grew up in Reno, we had the beaded curtain room that held the adult films behind <laughs> it, and then when yeah. we went to Utah, they don't have any of that. So there was the big deal because there were conservative groups that went looking through video stores for this double cassette blue version because it was the closest thing to pornography that someone could rent from a video store. So it was kind of like a big controversy back in the like the 80s and 90s here. But wow. as for DVDs, there was never that real good version available for many, many years. Um, so, so yeah, the, the, there, there are now. But the version that I have that I bought years ago, that Australian import, it's probably what you have too. Yeah, it's uh, all white. There's actually, you, you, you get a tit shot right on the back cover. <laughs> and I was just I was just looking here. It says, it is licensed not for sale outside of Australia and New Zealand. So apparently I shouldn't have yeah. this. <laughs> um, yeah, that's just like the joys of Amazon but I mean like you could go down a rabbit hole to different versions of this movie and the, the, I don't know if you saw some of the research about people wanting to do the, there's been talks about cuts that are supposed to be closer to Gore Vidal's original screenplay or a cut that's supposed to be closer to uh, maybe like a work print of what uh, Tinto Brass has 
you know, to me, and, and this is just because I'm, I'm kind of like a film nerd, I love checking out different cuts of movies. I, I think that's kind of fascinating. It's a, it's a fascinating comparison. And, um, you know, that's come up here on the show a lot. You know, when we were talking about Brazil, there's like four or five different cuts of Brazil. And um, we did Bad Santa for our uh, Christmas episode. And it's notoriously one of the, the few times that I've seen that a director's cut is shorter than um, the original theatrical. But to your point about comedies, the um, I would recommend to anyone, if you're going to revisit Bad Santa, watch the director's cut. It's only 89 minutes. It's not it, – he. It's so it's only 10 or 11 minutes uh, shorter – but it's it's just it's more potent. There's less time between the jokes. Um, the jokes land better, I think. But that's just I mean that's kind of the thing that I like talking about with other people that love cinema. It's just the different cuts of different movies. Um, some of the movies that are notorious for different cuts. Uh, you, you got Superman two with the Richard Donner cut. Um, yeah. Uh, Blade Runner. With you know t- taking out Harrison Ford's uh, voiceover, most recently the the Justice League with the Snyder cut coming up on the show. I'm gonna have I'm actually having a debate with someone. Um, Antonio, are you familiar with the movie uh, Payback starring Mel Gibson? Oh yeah, and that is one of the few that I actually agree with the studio. I, I liked the theatrical cut better than the um uh. Bar- Brian Hegelin cut. I thought his cut, it, it was a little too esoteric, I guess. It was a little too up its own ass. Okay. <laughs> there are some times, there are some times where I think if you have a good, if you have a studio that is looking out for their investment, but also protecting the name of the director, I think when you're a filmmaker, I mean, it's a, industry built on ego right yes and you always think that you have the right decisions but there are times when you have to listen to the guy signing the checks when they're like hey man i've been doing this for 50 years and i've seen hot-headed young directors think they know everything and then fuck up by getting final cut and making a film that audiences just didn't get like it's hard because i am such a cinematic enthusiast but at the same time it is a business and i think that's what a lot of people forget yes is this is studios are looking after their investment and directors and filmmakers they're only disposable if they allow themselves to be if you create an environment where you're working for your best interest and the studio's best interest, and you make a product that people like and they're going to pay money to see, that's a win-win relationship. Yep. That's why so many auteurs who are just so stubborn about what their final product needs to be, some of them we don't see again. Like, they put one great movie out, and then what happens? Michael Cimino and the Deer Hunter and Heaven's Gate, a perfect (laughs) example. Yeah, you know, so but again, that's that's my opinion on that. No, and I I totally agree with you. Um, for the most part, I'm actually a defender of the uh, this I think it's called the straight up cut, the the Helgelin cut of payback. But I'm gonna actually have that 
debate with someone about payback. And, um, but that's completely, you know, superfluous to this, <laughs> to this episode. But I, I mean, I think it really kind of depends on the individual. I mean, those one and done directors, though, some of the, their movies, um, in particular, one of my just an absolutely brilliant movie, Night of the Hunter, was um, a director that never worked again um, directing movies. And uh, a movie, The Honeymoon Killers, which is, is a brilliant movie, um, that director never worked again. And, and sometimes I, I think you kind of get directors that are coming out of the gate that that kind of fall on their own face. Um, most recently, I, I think that, you know, cer- certain directors are kind of, um, they're, they're uh, one-trick pony um, and I don't want to dismiss these people, indiv- you know, on a, on a whole, but someone like, um, and I'm just going to use him as an example, um, I, he has his defenders, but someone like Richard Kelly, who um, his debut movie, Donnie Darko, is now one of the most uh, um, just beloved uh, cult movies. Not a movie I particularly like, uh, but I can um appreciate it and i have respect for that movie everything he that he's done since and eh, not so much it was well, strictly as a director speaking but um yeah you were well, ta- i mean as we're speaking as we're speaking right now to tell your audience um the episode that i just released on wednesday that was pretty much the subject of that episode was was richard kelly and my second opinions of him as a filmmaker from when 20 years ago Donnie Darko came out. So really, it's the, it's a relevant conversation that kind of leads right into the episode that I released this week. Wow, that's that's amazing. Um, yeah, so um, well, we we got to have a, a, a talk about this. I, I talked about this with my, my, my co-host. We're going to go off on a, a quick Richard Kelly tangent, people. Um, I, I mean... I couldn't even get through Southland Tales. I just couldn't. Like, halfway through this movie, I was like, uh, it's not that I didn't get it. Well, that's probably part of it. But I didn't want to give it any more time to try to get it. And then The Box, which is a great short story and is a fantastic episode, 20-plus minutes minus commercials, so probably about 20, 22 minutes. You can find it on YouTube. Watch, um, I think it's called Push the Button. Um, but it's a Richard Matheson short story, and it was a great episode of The Twilight Zone um, in the 80s. Yep. 22 minutes long. That's all it needed to be. I don't need a 90-minute movie about the box. That's – no thank you. Um, but credit to Richard Kelly, I did enjoy Domino, directed by Tony Scott, which he is credited as the screenwriter. But um, And then I'm thinking of uh, – the writer-director of The Boondock Saints, and his name, I want to say it's Troy Duffy, I believe. It's Troy Duffy. Um, Boondock Saints is great. Boondock Saints 2, unnecessary. Now they're doing a third one. I'm all set. You know, it's just like, I mean, that's like the ultimate one-trick pony because this guy hasn't even tried anything different than The Boondock Saints. So that's just my little rant about, like, one-trick ponies, and I'm not even sure how we got on this 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 talk but um 
I mean, no one. Well, when I have you on my show, we can we can delve into those too because I have very similar opinions, but I don't want to fill Caliglia with those. Right? Yeah. No, I'd love to. I'd love to talk about those too. Uh, again, sometimes um, those are the movies that I think actually the behind the scenes are more interesting than the movie itself. Something like Caligula, I would love, and I don't know if the. I wish I had taken more advantage of like if there were bonus materials, but um. I'd love to see some behind-the-scenes material. And I believe one of the versions actually has a commentary from McDowell on it, if I'm not mistaken, which I would love to hear um, him talk about this. Um, but, yeah, I can I can only imagine... It, but going back to what you were saying about this being a business, I can only imagine if, you know... And that's why I don't want to kind of, like, point the finger at one person or another. But if I was Bob Guccione in the late 70s and this is the movie that was delivered to me. And this is something that I want to put out. You know, I just don't want to fund kind of like behind the scenes, like something like China, like Chinatown. I want to put the penthouse moniker. This is going to be penthouse movies. Like this is going to be our first epic movie. You know, it's kind of weird because then I'm like, okay, Penthouse has a very is known for a very kind of particular flavor for it's the, what the product that they're trying to deliver to their audience, something that their audience is going to want to spend time with. Um, so I could see Guccione looking at this and goes, well, there's not nearly a, a, enough sex in this movie. I need more sex. This is Penthouse. People expect um uh, beautiful women, and um, we there's there's no there's not a lesbian scene in here. I need uh, you you've, <laughs> you've got penises left and right. You got people masturbating, but I don't see any lesbians. So I need to you know, and yeah. So he kind of and like you were saying about the film stock, like there are. I mean, it's it's it was harder for me to recognize this time around, but I do remember. Um just because of the the pal pl uh, platform that I got this 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 DVD f through yeah there's a certain quality to it and yeah it, you you summed it up perfectly it looks like something that it looks like a BBC broadcast there's something just like it's different you know and like if you watch enough cinema and movies you could tell when you're like wow that's there's something different there um just like I can, you know. and I talk to other people, some people that are not nearly as invested in movies, but I can tell, um, I can tell if something's filmed digitally or if it's filmed, well, for the most part, I could tell if something's filmed digitally or if it's, you know, actual, you know, physical film that we're, we're shooting here. But I mean, have you heard the stories about just like how much, how many hours of footage that brass actually shot i've heard um like an, i mean just an amazing like hours and hours um anything that you want to share behind the scenes that you might know about as far as the amount of uh footage that was was shot well i mean a lot of it too has a loss of translation because remember they're filming in italy Right. And one of the things about production, even back then, in, in, in the late 70s, is they were always very cautious about the amount of people on set for budgetary reasons. That's why almost 
all performances in those films of those times were dubbed, even if they were in their own language. Mm-hmm. Um, they wouldn't they wouldn't shoot with with sound, and it was able to use actors of different nationalities, like Spanish actors, Moroccan actors, and there are many ethnicities in this movie. Yes, without having to worry about wasting time on sound. So if you're not wasting time on getting sound and room treatments and all those things like that. It allows you to capture more, more footage, more runtime. That's why films that like um, Sergio Leone did, and even Argento in his early days, were all shot silently because you were able to capture more visually without having to worry about where's the boom mic, who's mic'd, who's not mic'd. So again, this film completely redubbed. Yes. It it it, it gives you more freedom cinematically therefore you're going to shoot more film if you don't have to worry about sound setups you're going to shoot and then just edit later that's probably why so much film was shot and again that kind of goes to the inconsistency of performances there are a lot of extras in this film i read somewhere there were like at least five thousand extras at some point hired for this film of, of all nationalities, I mean, the notorious fisting scene, <laughs> a story that McDowell told about that on Gilbert Gottfried's podcast, probably the best story of this movie. So the original concept for that scene is that McDowell was actually supposed to, you know, have sex with, with the wife and then sodomize the husband after. And he's like, no, I'm not doing that. Like, this this film is just already so crazy. I don't, I don't, I'm not going to do that. And so him and Brass came up with the idea of like, well, how about you, you fist them instead? <laughs> so they came up with that idea on the spot. They shoot it on the spot. And after they're done shooting it, the, the guy who received the, you know, affection from McDowell right. <laughs> starts crying. He started, he started crying, even though they never really actually did it. It was, sure. all, you know, film trick. He starts crying, and McDowell's like, what's wrong? What, why are you, I did, did I hurt you? I didn't even, like, touch you. And the guy starts speaking to him in Italian, and the translator's like, no, he's crying because that's his family over there watching. They're all extras, and they just watched you stick your hand up his ass, oh, and he's ashamed by it. I mean, that's what was going on on this film. Like, yeah. people were just getting brought off the street as extras, and then asked us to play a role. And I guess that's just that style of filmmaking in that part of the world at that time. Wow. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I one of the things that I came across in my research is that Peter O'Toole almost refused to come back to do, um, you know, his voice dubbing. And he had to kind of, like, be convinced. Uh, and I know that, yeah, you've got a lot of... Um, language barriers going on you have so many different people with so many different dialects you know that's kind of one of those lost in translation kind of moments when you have so many people from all around the world talking in all these different languages and um but another scene that uh, apparently the childbirth scene in this movie is apparently a real childbirth did you come did were you aware of that I think it was actually three childbirths. Yeah. I and think... that's why they have the mask. Yeah. It was uh, three or four. They had three or four pregnant um, extras. Um, so, yeah, this movie, you've got sex all around you. You've got violence. And then you get a real childbirth scene. 
I mean, ugh. but I mean, at the at the core of this movie, it's like you said, absolute power corrupts absolutely, and that's kind of you know that's the true story it's, of Caligula. It's a, yeah, it's a metaphor for this production, honestly. Yeah, um, you're given uh, you know you're given this money, these lavish sets, and um. I can only imagine the sort of debauchery that was going on behind the scenes, you know, let alone the debauchery that's going on in, in front of the cameras. But I mean, the, the, the this movie, I believe, takes is kind of like takes it's kind of set over four years, if I'm not mistaken. And Caligula, um, Gaius Caligula, um, yeah, he was he was not in power for very long. He was uh he was quickly he was kind of quickly offed. Um kind of cuz he was um well in the movie he's kind of like he's go, he wants to kind of like go against the the senatorial um I guess class of um of people. And I think that is actually pretty historically accurate, if I'm not mistaken. But I mean, yeah, it, yeah. I mean, the his rise to power w- was was quick and swift, and his fall was even quicker. Um, so, you know, and there's something about this story that's actually really beautiful, and it's not, it's 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 in there, but it's not amplified enough to. Um, really elevate its significance in the film. And that is like this whole uh, idea of the omen of the blackbird. You know, Drizella at the very beginning mm, yeah. is afraid of the blackbird. And every time the blackbird shows up, something bad happens. And unless you're really paying attention to the film, you kind of miss that significance. It's kind of the whole plot driver of the story. Like every act of the film and this doesn't really follow a first act, second act, third act arc like a normal story should because, again, it's been chopped and pasted and all that stuff together. So it, it really just has a very unlinear flow to it. But there's something really beautiful about that whole idea. And I'm sure that came from Vidal's screenplay that was totally just kind of swept under for all these sex scenes and all this gratuitous nature. But like I said, there's a lot of part of this. There's a lot of this movie that there's a good movie in there. You just have to like find it. At the same time, like McDowell's performance is, it's almost like when Robin Williams used to like riff on stage and just go off topic and just do a bunch of you know topical humor or nonsensical humor in between his jokes in case he forgot like the punchline or the structure <laughs> for a joke. McDowell's kind of doing that, but with a film like. If there's dead space, he's filling that space. Right. And I'm sure there was a lot of dead space. And it kind of it robs you of this character's progression because I feel like that progression is supposed to be like, you know, at first he's cocky, but he's still very under the thumb of of his uncle, Peter O'Toole, yes. until he takes over. And then, like the absolute power takes off and he starts getting that kind of like ego and that corruption. And then he has his breakdown after his sister dies from a fever. The progression should have like gone the opposite direction after that. But I think because that performance was so good and because brass maybe didn't even know where the story was going, they keep him on that same level all the way till the end. So 
you really don't get that character arc. And when he finally gets his at the end, you really don't feel too bad because there's no, like, redemption to that character. He also doesn't really get a lot worse. He kind of goes insane. I mean, he takes everyone to, to England to collect reeds. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but... <laughs> Yeah, like, again, the, the, it, it's not McDowell's fault that the character was so underdeveloped in the script and in the filmmaking. No, and also, I, I wonder if he brought this up on the podcast. I'm very interested to hear, because if you go on Wikipedia, which is not the most reliable source, it's also not the most unreliable source, he's he's uncredited as, as a screenwriter. Um, and I did, I think, I'm trying to... Th- I think I read an article. One of the scenes that he helped script or helped created was, um, I think this is after his sister dies that he kind of has a, he has a break. He has like a breakdown during a thunderstorm. Um, I believe that was kind of crafted by McDowell. So he was kind of, you know, I think he was, yeah, he he was obviously kind of leaning more towards what Vidal had in mind initially and kind of, um, what brass maybe failed to grasp. Um, yeah. So and he's known for doing that. He's known for bringing ideas to the table. The whole singing in the rain sequence in clockwork orange was his idea. Yeah. Which Kubrick not known for taking advice from actors even gave him credit for that moment. Yeah. I mean, we could have a whole discussion about Kubrick. Yeah. He's very, I mean that he's like the ultimate perfectionist uh the only other time that i think that he's ever given credit to a to an actor just like you said with um singing in the rain with mcdowell and a clockwork orange the here's johnny line from the shining he you know he admitted that you know as, as someone living in england he didn't know who johnny carson was but he credits Nicholson with it, and I guess he kind of just trusted. I mean, if he trusts you, he's going to kind of he's kind of going to go with um go with what you're saying, and um I'm I'm sure uh, Brass um who was um I, I'm sure that he was very, you know I I haven't I didn't find all that much about what Brass had to say about that, but I'm sure he was very excited to work with someone like Malcolm McDowell and to work with Peter O'Toole and Heron Meal and and um. You know, um, yeah, there's, you know, for for people that if you're listening to the show and you haven't seen the movie, there is a very, very good movie in here. Um, and nowadays you have the ability, if this is streaming, you could, you know, skip it. Or if you're watching it on, on DVD or Blu-ray, fast forward through the the gratuitous sex scenes and, and or just wait until <laughs> they finally release... Um, I mean, there's been talks about different cuts uh, that still haven't been released. Um, but, I mean, this movie, I I could see why it developed a cult following. And I was kind of surprised. I mean, it wasn't a huge, I wouldn't say bomb. But, I mean, from what I came up with, so this movie was made for about $17.5 million. Engrossed about twenty three point four million at the box office, has easily recouped all this money through the various um, releases that this movie had. Uh, so I mean, it's it, it certainly wasn't a bomb, but I mean, critics hated it. Roger Ebert, I believe, walked out yeah. of the <laughs> the movie. Um, 
Yeah, so the movie was released in Italy in August 14th, 1979, and finally released February 1st, 1980 in the United States. But, I mean, the critic, I mean, yeah, I could see why critics didn't like this movie. But if you, um, if you're patient and could sit through, like, or, or seek out the 90-minute cut, I would say, to watch. Yeah, because the 90-minute cut, man, I... It's not a fantastic movie, but no. it tells a story. This 240-minute whatever cut doesn't tell a story. It, it it really is just an exercise in excess and debauchery of a producer who was trying to stroke his own ego as a pornographer than he was as a filmmaker. Because if he was truly a producer and a filmmaker, he would want to tell a good story. He just wanted people to talk about this film in the future, which, hey, guess what? We are. We're on yeah. a podcast talking about it. <laughs> and, and it's kind of like that, you know, uh, no news is bad news. Like, like, or bad news is good news. Like, there's, there's nothing that we can say bad about this film that's not going to make someone at least want to go and watch it. We've talked about unstimulated sex. We've talked about over-the-top performances. We've talked about, you know, all the little things, debauchery. That's going to make someone be like, oh, well, I want to see what they're talking about, even if it's not a good movie, you know, it still has an audience. And and I'm not sure how accurate this is, but Guccione said that it was pulled from theaters like a week or two after being released, and already it was like on its way to making $3 million. Had it stayed in the theaters, he said that it would have been the highest grossing um, R-rated or X-rated film in history had they allowed it to stay in the theaters. So I don't know what kind of validation there is behind that, but you know, I, who knows like that, that was a time where people really were looking for something different, something new, but like this was the one that kind of knocked over all the dominoes. Like you can push a movie audience too far. And I think that's what this film did. Yeah. I mean, and like you said, it's, I, I unfortunately, yeah, this, this bloated, Bloated as Peter O'Toole in this movie is, um, <laughs> this the, the yeah the version that I have the two and a half hours, uh, you know, if you like, like it, it it's almost yeah yeah I think you kind of summed it up. It's like the closest to to watching a porno movie than actually watching a porno movie. Um, and for those of you that are like interested in those those porn movies where, where the plot is you know really driving this porn movie, um, <laughs> but this was also around. I want to say this was kind of around the time when we almost had um, what is it behind the green door, which is like the art house porn movie. It was almost. I mean, this is like porn leaking into. It was a tiny bit earlier. Okay. Yeah, it was a tiny bit earlier. But we have. But I mean, like it's still the seventies, and again, you you have before the advent of porn on home video, there was this idea that porn was going to go mainstream. This might be the most mainstream pornographic film internationally um, in the United States. I would still say like Behind the Green Door, The Devil and Miss Jones, like those are the ones that Deep Throat. Those were all pretty much considered 
not only pornography, but mainstream films. Right. This one, I think, was trying to take that to an international level. And maybe that's why there's so much excess to it, and that's why there's so many international filmmakers behind it. And before I close on that, we didn't talk about the score. The score is amazing for this Yes. Yes. Yeah. Let's talk about this. Um... It was done by ooh, the name I have it written here someplace. Who, who did the score? Um, because it's credited to one person, but it's actually a pseudonym, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure who did the score, but I mean, there are a lot of uh, compilations of like previously released work in there. Um, most notably, the one I recognize is the Adagio of Spartacus, which they used in the Hudsucker Proxies score. So it's really? funny, if you've okay. ever seen that film, and then you watch this film, you're like, oh, it's the same music. So they just take samples of this this Adagio. But yeah, I mean, like, this score is, to me, the movie does not deserve the score that it has. No, I so I just quickly looked it up. So the music is done by Bruno Nicolai... Um, but it's credited as Paul Clemente. Um, yeah, Bruno Nicolai was an Italian film music cons- composer through the 60s through the 80s, um, who was a friend of Ennio Morricone. So, I mean, yeah. I, I know people that actually own the score for this. Um, I mean, I yeah, think that's... it's a great, great, great score. Um so yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up because that was something that um I failed to mention. I mean, yeah, I'm not a huge fan of the the cinematography. It's it's very it's clearly was shot by multiple different people. Just like the editing is kind of all over the place. I can't really say much about that just because it's kind of it's a hodgepodge. Um, th- this is like the epitome of too many cooks spoiling the broth as far as the cinematography and the editing goes. But as far as the score goes, it seems that it was pretty much one person with some um, reinterpretations or or reusing previously um, done pieces. But, I mean, yeah, at times... there, there There are glimpses of, like brilliance in this movie where sometimes you get a beautiful um shot and might not last last for very long but you have this beautiful music and you do have some beautiful imagery going on there um whether you know it's just it's just one of those things that you could um just kind of randomly skip through this movie and kind of there are some real um elements here that are that are worth talking about on a more um interesting level than just i mean it would be very easy just to simply talk about all the 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 sex that's going on in this movie on display for us um but i i mean that's not what that was probably that was well not probably. Honestly, that was part of the appeal for me as a teenager when I first saw this movie. I was like, oh, I mean, I, it was similar to the way that I, I, I wanted to, to see Showgirls because it's NC-17 and it's, you know, you know you're, yeah. you're a young teenager. So these things are all 
you know, curiosities to you, but, you know, you go back and I've covered showgirls on the, on the show as far as, you know, why it has developed such a cult following because it's, it's just more so than the, the, the sex on display. I mean, the movie's just, well, that's, if you want to hear my, my thoughts on showgirls, they're available. But <laughs> as far as Caligula goes, I, I think that um, as an adult, or as a more mature cinema fan, um, I mean, I think the stories behind the movie are more, uh, at times, more interesting than what's actually going on on the screen. I mean, if you're one of those people that that likes to play on your phone while watching a movie, um, don't watch the 90-minute cut. Watch the two and a half hours, and when there's something <laughs> going on screen that doesn't appeal to you, I mean, it'll wrap up in a minute or two, but I mean... Guccione's got to get his sex in there because, like you, I mean, it's a business. He's got to recoup his money that he's invested in here. I mean, people kind of expect. I well, I would think people would expect a certain kind of thing when they're going to see a movie from Penthouse. I mean, you're going to expect a certain sexuality going on there. Um, probably not as many penises as you would probably hope from something like <laughs> Pentos. I mean, if this movie was put out by Playgirl, then yeah, I could see, uh, okay, you know, that's a, but there's, yeah, um, but, um, that's enough penis and talk for, for one episode, but, um, Antonio, before we start wrapping up, any final thoughts or any behind the scenes kind of, uh, nuggets of, uh, you want to share with us about Caligula? No, I think I covered the ones that, like, were the most pressing to me. I mean, like, I, you can't ignore that this is, you used the word enigma earlier, and you're 100% right. To have people like O'Toole, Helen Mirren, McDowell, and John Gilgood, who, I mean... He was knighted! Got, <laughs> you certainly... He was knighted. Yeah. Yeah, and, and he's in a porn movie, like, like O'Toole said. <laughs> I, I think that there has something to be said about the historical importance of this film whether it is a cautionary tale or whether it is something to be celebrated as hey someone put this together and it exists and people talk about it to this day and who knows it might have a, a, a rebirth if with new releases like if there's one thing that we can say about this world that we live in is there's always a collector or a champion of something like this mm -hmm. you know we're, we're, the the films that people used to laugh about on usa up all night or the directed video films of the 80s that like would plague video store shelves people are spending big money these days through vinegar syndrome and aero video and all these different boutique labels i mean they're laughing all the way to the bank it's 30 years later but it's happening this is something that's like ripe for a rediscovery and you know maybe the pornography part of it is is part of that fascination but just the story behind it and just that performance and i think i'll end my piece on malcolm mcdowell because i didn't really say this as much earlier malcolm mcdowell's one of my favorite actors you talked about like even if the material is 
leaving something to be desired. He always commits 100%. He doesn't phone it in. And he can actually make something bad enjoyable. I would say that Michael Caine is the same way. Michael Caine's made some terrible movies. Jaws 4. He's still really good. (laughs) He's Michael Caine. Jaws 4. Yeah. Rings the Titanic. These movies are terrible, but Michael Caine commits 100%. I got in a discussion with the... um, uh, Sound Spooky podcast about Silence of the Lambs because they were trying to think who would have played a better Hannibal Lecter than Anthony Hopkins. And because originally it was supposed to be Gene Hackman and they talked to Robert De Niro, I put down Malcolm McDowell and it was like a mic drop. Everyone's like, oh my God, I would have paid double to see that film if Malcolm McDowell played Hannibal Lecter. In my opinion, he's the only guy that could have done it better than Anthony Hopkins, and I stand by that 100%. No, I think that I would love that's something I would love to see. Um, just a, a, a quick uh, tangent. Um, I, I do think that uh, Brian Cox, though, in Manhunter is an underrated Hannibal Lecter. I wouldn't put him up there with, with um, them, but I, I think. His performance of Hannibal Lecter, I think, kind of gets forgotten that this, you know, Red Dragon is out there. I mean, if you want to see it, but if you want to see the original Red Dragon, uh, check out Michael Mann's Manhunter. But again, that's that's my personal opinion. I think that that Cox actually is quite good in that movie. But um, oh, yeah, I agree 100 percent. I was just saying for Silence of the Lambs, yes, how it was capped. That's I would have gone with that guy. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, but again, I, it, like you were saying, we live in a world where we have, I mean, instead of getting hung up on movies that you hate, and negativity is so easy to spread, and it unfortunately seems to bring more attention, I think we need to realize that we are so fortunate to live in a world where, I mean, when I was growing up as a Batman just comic book fan, I couldn't imagine the amount of... Batman material that is out there now. So, like, instead of getting hung up on who's the worst Batman, why don't we just take some time to focus on the fact that we have the opportunity to discuss that topic instead of ripping a movie up. And that's why I kind of, like, I like to showcase movies like Caligula on this show is that, I mean, you can hate the movie if you want. That's your opinion. That's fine. Um... And that's the great thing about movies is that, I mean, unless you're dealing with hard facts, it's it's very, uh, you know, it's it's all subjective. So all uh, subjective, 100 percent. Yeah. And the, the, the last thing to that for me is I respect anyone that can make it in that industry, even if it's only one time. So many people try. If you get something made and get people to see it. Not only that, I get people to talk about it all these years later. You win. Like, it doesn't matter if you made all the money in the world or you made nothing. Like, the fact that you were able to get your name out there and that you were able to make something that people talk about, there's a lot of pride to be had in that because so many people try and fail. Like, I respect anyone working in this industry, whether it's the adult film industry, TV, movies, Bible movies, you are doing well if you are working in this industry. I have all the respect in the world for you. Absolutely. Yes, because you are in 
a medium that is open to interpretation by everyone in the world, you are opening yourself up for interrogation and ridicule, and that just comes with the territory. You have to be willing to accept that if you're going to take that role in this industry. But just be happy that you're in the industry. I say that all the time because I don't like talking shit on movies on my podcast. I like to speak movies up. Yes. But there's every, there are always people that are just going to want to tear everything down. It's their right to. At the yep. same time, we haven't made films. We are talking about films because we haven't made them. Therefore, I salute anyone that's working in this industry, regardless of what genre it is. Right. And I think that that is something that I, I set out when I, I don't know about you, what your, your intentions were when you decided to start doing. It sounds like we had similar intentions, is that I saw that a lot of mostly on YouTube, but a lot of these shows that, that cover cult movies, it's just like a riff party. They're just making fun of the movie, and that's that's easy to do. Um, I think it's harder to have like a serious discussion about the, the positive merits of the film. I mean, like you said, kudos to, to whoever is out there creating. I mean... It might not be your cup of tea, but that's someone's dream that has been achieved. So instead of uh, punching down, I mean, punching up, it's 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 a lot harder. But um, um, speaking of punching, I mean, you know, I'm going to end on a bad joke. But yeah, Malcolm McDowell straight up punches a dude in the butt in this movie. So, uh, I mean, if that's going to get you to watch the movie, watch the movie. Um Whatever's going to get you to watch the movie, at least give it a chance. Um, nothing that I hate more, and it, yes, this is ignorant, is judging something that you have not seen. So that's something I absolutely cannot stand. Um, don't, I never... It's okay, it's okay to tap out on this one. You yes. Tap out. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> that's what my co-host said. He said, I watched it once. That's enough. I don't. I need to watch this movie again to talk about it. To me, um, I'll watch it because I find it fascinating. And like, and like me and Antonio were saying throughout this, the, I mean, the main takeaway from this podcast should be is that there is a very good movie in here somewhere. It's just at times it doesn't seem that way, and it you know, but it, trust us, we we we've devoted our our, our passions here to cult movies. So. There's a good movie in here somewhere, but but seek it out, and um, I'm looking forward to see if there's there's new cuts coming out. I thank you so much, Antonio, for joining me from the Cult Worthy Podcast. Links to Antonio's website and his Twitter are going to be in the episode description. Please follow him on Twitter. Check out his stuff. Give him some love. Just another fantastic creator out there. We thank you all here from the Cult Film Companion Podcast for joining us once again Twitter at Cult Film Comp. We are on every major pl- podcast platform. Links for that are in our website through ACAST, or just go to your podcast platform of choice. Search for the Cult Film Companion. Join our Facebook page. Follow us on Instagram. It's Cult. And um, please, I love get to get movie recommendations from people. At uh, my email for the show is cultfilmcompanion at gmail dot com. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, give. Give Caligula a chance if you haven't.